0: Well, good day, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so I'm laughing because, uh, you know, that, that circle, for those of you watching, the uh, the circle thing there that usually goes around uh, during the countdown, it wasn't showing up and I was clicking on things and <laughs> that started the timer over a few times. And uh, anyway, good day, everyone. Glad you're with us. This is Live with Doug. We're live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's word together. And I don't know. What happened there technologically, but uh, we'll have to figure it out. Anyway, glad you're with us. We are studying the book of Isaiah. Good morning, Paul, Keith, and Martin, Dale, and the rest of you. Uh, So glad you could join us today. We are going to get back into chapter two of Isaiah, which uh, we discussed yesterday. Uh, Toward the end here, we're going to find some interesting questions. We'll see how far we get today. Um, Let's go back and review what we saw. Huh, what Isaiah saw. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this is a vision God gave him concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations Will stream to it. So we talked about this yesterday, and one of the questions that comes to mind is the last days of what? All right? Isaiah sees this vision of the last days of something, and this is what he sees: the mountain of the house of the Lord. Remember, we talked about how uh, mountains were the were the places where gods lived in antiquity. In the in the Greek religions and Roman religions and going as far back as we have literature, uh, and this this is natural, right? We if you think about uh, going back before modern technology and our ability to fly and and move so quickly, the mountains were you know you had to walk everywhere, and mountains were big uh, uh, majestic kinds of structures, and they still are. But I think maybe we have. Conquered uh, in in some ways, we feel like we've conquered them. They're not as impressive as they once were. Um, So, if you think about antiquity, big mountains, gods lived up there. That's where the powerful uh, would live. And and Martin, I see you're already, already offering an an argument or answer the question. That's a good uh, good observation there. We'll see if we can get any any traction on that. So, mountains were. The places where uh, God's lived and the mountain on which the house of the Lord dwelt, that mountain was going to be raised and established on the chief of the mountains, raised above the hills. And so the imagery there is God's house and the mountain it's on would be uh, triumphant, higher than all the other places where God's lived right? And the nations will stream to it. We, we pointed out yesterday how that's uh, contrary to nature. Streaming goes downhill. This is nations streaming uphill to the house of God, to the mountain where the house of God is. And many peoples will come and say, here's what they will say. So you've got nations streaming to the mountain and peoples Two different words to describe, you know, the same kind of thing, nations and peoples. And many peoples will come and say, and here's what they'll say. Look at the quotation marks. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. They're being very specific about the God they want to seek, the God who lives on that mountain, the God who lives in that house, on the highest of the mountains. Let's go. Let's go to him. Why? That he may teach us concerning his ways. We want to walk in the ways of that God. That we may walk in his paths. We want to go where that God goes. We want to walk down the paths that he lays out. Uh, Thanks, Keith, for highlighting that. There's the text for you. Okay. Uh, So, since you weren't able to pay attention, no doubt, because that's how we are as humans. (laughs) Reiterate, for, for those of you listening to the podcast, like, Yeah, I got it. Peoples are going to come and say, come, let us go to the the mountain of the Lord, the house of Jacob, and we want to be taught by him. We want to walk in the paths he gives us. So that ends the quotation, and the question is, why? Why are peoples going to say this? Why are many peoples going to say, we want to go to the house of the God of Jacob because we want to learn from him. We want to walk where he walks and walk in his paths. Notice the word for here that gives an explanation or a cause. The reason peoples are going to pursue that God is for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here we have an example of Hebraic parallelism. In Hebrew poetry, which we find all through the Old Testament, especially the Psalms and the prophets. In Hebrew poetry, there are uh, several kinds of parallelism. This is this is how they stressed things uh, or exp- expanded things. You know, in, our, in English poetry, everything has to rhyme. The last words of clauses rhyme and that kind of thing. And that, and that helps, uh, helps kind of reiterate what's being said. Well, in Hebrew poetry, one of the ways they did it was repetition. And repeating concepts that, uh, that kind of explained uh, the, the assertion. So here, law and word of the Lord are parallel. So those are both referring to the same thing. And Zion and Jerusalem are parallel. So the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So they kind of mutually explain one another. So the answer to the question, why are peoples streaming to Zion? Why are they pursuing the God of Jacob? And why do they want to be taught his ways? The reason is because the Lord's word, the law has gone from Zion and from Jerusalem. You see that? So the vision is peoples streaming to Zion in response to the word or the law coming from Zion. See that? They want to go to the Mount of the Lord because the word of the Lord has come from Jerusalem. So the mountain of the Lord is Zion in Jerusalem. People are fleeing, their, uh, fleeing is not the right word, they are, they are moving toward Zion because the word has come from Zion or from Jerusalem. Now, for some of you, I know you're like, yeah, yeah I got it, got it, move on, why? Uh, why keep saying this? It's so obvious. But some of you probably have never gone slowly through this text and, and you need to see this. So I'm... Uh, I'm just trying to make sure uh, you get it. (laughs) That some of you are already asking questions, uh, trying to jump ahead. Yes. Uh, Mike says, Who is the poet? Uh, I'm not entirely sure why you're asking. So this is Isaiah. And then yesterday, we talked about how Micah has virtually the same, almost verbatim the same passage. Uh, So could be, could be Isaiah, could be Micah, could be someone else, who uh, uh, Micah and Isaiah both are quoting from. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what. Uh, if you want to give me a little more clarity on your question. All right. So Martin says, sounds like the promise of the new covenant. Paul says, which law is it? The law of Christ. So since you're already introducing the topic, let's take a look at it. So. We now know, right? We know that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ, and we're trying to look at this and say, how does this point to Christ? Well, for my money, this sounds <clears throat> very much like what we call the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission, right? Uh, we call it that. The Bible doesn't call it that. But the Great Commission, uh, it's, it's Jesus after the resurrection, sending his disciples to preach the gospel to the nations, right? We call that the Great Commissions. Missions organizations are are driven by this concept that that we need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, America didn't start the missionary work, but certainly in the last century or so, uh, you know, from Europe to America, the the missions endeavor has increased big time. and, And in the last many decades, many nations are sending missionaries to other nations all with this, this zeal to complete the Great Commission, as we call it. Well, that whole endeavor really springs from uh, Matthew 28. So let's take a look at Matthew 28. So this is post-resurrection. Jesus has died on the cross, came back to life on the third day. He's interacting with the disciples here before he ascends to heaven. And he comes to them and he says, All authority has been given to me, in heaven and on earth. All right. How much authority has been given to Jesus? What is he in authority over? Well, he says all authority. All of it. How much is all of it? It's a lot, right? Jesus is the highest ranking official in the universe. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will make one exception to this. God, who gives Jesus all authority, obviously God is not in subjection to Jesus, right? So God, and that's implied here, it's been given. Somebody gave it to Jesus. Well, that would be God. So let this sink in. Jesus here at the resurrection is claiming that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So he is the ruler of the universe. He's high king. As someone has said, there is not one square inch in the universe that King Jesus does not claim that's mine. Now think of the implications of this. you have a king and your family has a king and your neighbors have a king and your city has a king and your country has a king. Every human being on planet earth, every animal, every creature, every angel, every demon, everything that exists in the universe has a king and his name is Jesus. And according to Jesus, that was true 2000 years ago, at the resurrection. He's not waiting to become king. He's not waiting to be given authority. He says it here, all authority has been given to me. Does that sound anything at all like this? The ma- mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Sure does to me that Jesus being given all authority is a parallel concept to the, the chief mountain, the God raised above all other gods, uh, is Jesus. I think that's what's going on here. I think the Great Commission is the fulfillment of Isaiah 2. All right. So, all the nations are going to stream to it. Many peoples are going to come, right? Um, peoples are going to come to the God of Jacob and want to be taught by him, right? Again, I'm, let me pull this back up. Right, so this is what we have over here. Many peoples will come and say, Come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. Why? Because the law goes forth from Zion, the word from the Lord, from Jerusalem, brother. Jesus says, I have been given all authority. Here's what he's telling his disciples to do go disciple the nations. See that? The nations streaming to the mountain of God because the law or the words going from Jerusalem. Jesus, here in Jerusalem, is telling his disciples, Make disciples of all the nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the first is to go call them to faith, and when they come to faith, baptize them. Second, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The word of the Lord goes from Jerusalem. The law from Zion. Jesus says, teach them to obey all that I commanded you. So I think what what we have here in the Great Commission is Jesus now Claiming to be that mountain, if you will, he doesn't use the language, of course. But but remember, this is a vision that Isaiah sees, and he doesn't know exactly how it's going to be played out. We we looked at that. Uh, P- Peter tells us that uh, the, the prophets saw their visions, they wrote it down, and then they inquired to see what was the spirit of Christ revealing, what was the time, the fulfillment of all of this. They didn't they didn't have the full picture. They didn't they didn't have the interpretation. They just declared what God gave them to declare, what what He showed them in the vision. But now we put these pieces together, Jesus saying, I am the king of the universe. I'm the the, the mountain of God, if you will. And I'm sending you out with my law, my commandments, take my word to all the nations in fulfillment of this. And if that's true, then we should expect this to be fulfilled, right? We should expect the nations to be discipled. So yesterday I, uh, I raised the issue of post millennialism, and uh, you know I told you I don't want this whole thing to become about millennialism uh, because we get so wrapped up in our presuppositions. Uh, about these things that uh, you know, people have already made commitments to their eschatology and, and don't really let the text say what they say. So I don't I don't want to get all wrapped up uh, in those labels. But just taking these things at face value and, and kind of exploring them here, Isaiah sees the vision of, of nations streaming to Zion. Jesus says, "Go disciple the nations. We should expect fulfillment of these things which is hopeful. If I were a, a worldwide missionary, I would look at these passages and take it as impetus to say, go do this and expect results. Now, yeah, the results are in God's hands. Don't Don't mishear me, but it sure seems to me like God's plan from way back in Isaiah's time is 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 the nations coming to Jesus. Which other passages in the New Testament shows fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. All the nations will be blessed in your offspring, Abraham. In you, in your seed, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How? As the gospel is preached and the nation's stream to King Jesus. This is one of the reasons I'm very optimistic and hopeful about the expansion of the the gospel and its impact. All right, I see some comments here. Uh, Looks like some folks are interacting with. uh, Fisher Strong says, I'm 12 minutes behind. Well, (laughs) I can't speed you up, brother or sister. Uh, Guessing by your Oh, Fisher Strong, yeah. I'm guessing you're a man there. Welcome. Uh, Martin says, sounds like uh, good post some texts. Yeah, I didn't see that before I made the comment. Uh, that's what it sounds like. Again, let's not get too wrapped around labels here yet, but at least some optimism, it seems to me. Uh, Dale says, I'd feel more comfortable speaking in terms of more clear and less clear God expected people to be getting something out of it, but that may be dorky semantics on my part. Um, and you have another comment. So may, let me see if that explains it. Uh, that's my that's the, the downside of not interacting with all these as they come in. Uh, while a lot of Isaiah does happen soon, example Babylon's fall. The Bible as a whole is about Jesus, so it makes sense God would increasingly center the narrative on him. Yeah, exactly. And that's you know we have the benefit of hindsight. We have so much of the New Testament. Showing us the fulfillment of these things. When we get to to Isaiah seven, uh, I'm convinced that the the virgin birth uh, promise is about Mary and Jesus. And you know, a lot of people want to argue for a dual fulfillment or a near fulfillment for Isaiah's time, uh, and because they ask the question, "Well, uh, how does this apply to Isaiah to 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 Ahaz and all that?" And when we get there, I'll explain what I think is going on there. But God. Certainly speaks to the age in which he is talking to, to the people he's talking to. But we now know all of this points to Jesus. And the story is unfolding to get to Jesus. So uh, I agree. It does make sense. Uh, so that doesn't help me. I'm not quite sure what, uh, Dale, what you're getting at. You feel more comfortable speaking in terms of more clear and less clear. Is that referring to the vision there in, uh, in Isaiah 2 and what, what Isaiah is, uh, is seeing? If you want to follow up on that, feel free. Uh, Mike says, why is God through Isaiah telling these people something that won't happen until hundreds of years later? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and maybe, uh, these are all kind of speaking together. All right. So, um, uh, why, so, all right. I, I wasn't, uh, I was kind of dancing around this as I was talking about Isaiah seven. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how much to go in here because this is a a longer statement. But um, all the way through the Old Testament, uh, God is, again, as I just said, he's, he's dealing with the current generation, but always with an eye toward Jesus. That was always the plan. That was where everything was going. And he is, uh, he is setting everything up for the kingdom that is coming with his son Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of everything. He's the fulfillment of everything. He's the the reason for everything. I wrote a little book on this uh, called Exalted. If you want to check that out, just unpacking how the, everything in the scripture is about Jesus and how he's you know I kind of expand on what I was getting at earlier about Jesus being king of the universe. Um, so he's, we're going to see this all through Isaiah. He is warning the Jews of the coming destruction that will happen fairly near term for them. Although if you have been with us, you know that Isaiah is writing, you know, a hundred years before the fall of Jerusalem. So even some that he's speaking to will not live to see the the fulfillment of the, the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming. So he, he, he's speaking to that generation but everything is also anticipating and pointing toward and preparing for the ultimate consummation, which is Jesus. And that's why there's all the statements about waiting, waiting, and waiting. And now, you know we look at that and say, well, what about the millions of Jews that died before the culmination, right? Uh, and I believe the New Testament has an answer for that. It's beyond our scope here. But yeah, they they looked with eyes of faith. This is what uh, Hebrews 11 is all about. Those who were uh, looking in the future with the eyes of faith, and, and the writer of Hebrews even says, and yet they didn't receive the promise before us, before the new covenant believers. And that gets into what happened to this Old Testament saints when they died. And we'll we'll come back to that sometime. But that's, uh, that's generally what I think is going on here. Uh, all right. Thanks, Paul, for, or Dale, for clarifying that you're responding to Paul. Lon says would appreciate your thoughts on my comments yesterday on um, is that Hebrews nine twenty six twenty eight. Uh, so, Lon, follow up with me. Let me know that I'm going to assume that's what it is until you clarify. Uh, or am I missing it? Culmination of the age, second appearance. So I'm going to assume you mean Hebrews 9, 26, 28. And, uh, oh yeah, it's got to be because I see the wording here. So let me, uh, here's what Hebrews 9, 26 says. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. So this is talking about Jesus. Let me back up and catch the context. Uh, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. So the, the whole point of Hebrews is there are Jewish people. Converts to Christ who are being tempted to go back to the old covenant system. The priesthood, sacrifices, all of that. The writer of Hebrews is warning them that if they do so, uh, they will be abandoning Christ and the, the atonement that comes through his death and resurrection. So he's trying to show how Christ is superior to everything in the Old Covenant. So that's the broader context. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He did not enter a temple, um, a structure, a physical structure, a mere copy of the true one. So the the temple the Jews had uh, was a copy of the heavenly temple, so to speak. He did not enter that, but he entered heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. So again, the concept, the contrast, the high priest in the old covenant system went into the Holy of Holies year after year on the day of atonement to offer multiple sacrifices, right? He had to do it every year. Jesus didn't do it yearly. He didn't do it, didn't do it multiple times. He didn't do it often. He did it once. He went into the real Holy of Holies, offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice and doesn't need to offer sacrifice over and over again. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. So Jesus' atonement would have to be offered moment by moment, day by day, year by year to atone for all the sins of all those people because you know, we, uh, we're sinners. So uh, he did it once, that's the point. But now once at the consummation of, of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once after this judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So some interesting things here, and Lon, uh, feel free to, to explain exactly what your question is, and, and maybe you did here. I'll take a look at that in a moment. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus did not uh, need to be offered, he didn't need to die on the cross over and over again, just one time. He's done it now, that's in the writer of Hebrews day, first century. Now he did it at the consummation of the ages which is a very interesting statement, isn't it? Consummation. This is a form of the word telos. Now, do you remember? Some of you have been with us a long time. What does the word telos mean? It's often translated end, just like the end of something. But if you were with us in the, um, the law and spirit, where we compared Romans 7, Galatians 5, and talked about the law, the flesh and the spirit, all of that, I made a big deal of this word end, Anybody remember what it was? What uh, what telos means? Um, give you a chance. Yes, Dale got it. You nailed it. Excellent. Purpose or or goal. Uh, so here at the goal, and it, it, so it adds the word goal and the word with, and that's what we get. The word consummation, uh, the 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 end toward which everything is moving. So the writer of Hebrews here is saying that. The time of the sacrifice of Jesus, first century, is the consummation of the ages. The goal, the the intended end toward which the ages was moving. Fascinating. So, Lon, let me see if you this question. Corresponds here. Uh, End of the Old Covenant regarding sacrificial laws for sin. With Christ's culmination of the age, last days at least, what is the second appearance for salvation? Yeah, I figured that's where you're going with your question. Um, That's a great question. right, so back to the text here. I'm not sure why their quote is staying on that screen. Okay. So it's appointed for men to die once. All right, so you're going to die, I'm going to die, and then after that death comes judgment. So Christ also, there's a comparison here, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly, eagerly await him. So the second time when he returns, he's not coming to offer himself as a sacrifice, he's coming to save us. And the question is to save us from what? Um, To save whom from what? That's a great question. And I'm gonna hold off on uh, an answer here. And uh, because what so often happens in these discussions is we start bringing everything we know from every passage to to these conversations and there's a place for that but i want us to slow down so some of you have wrestled through this and you've got your your vision of your view of things and and you know you 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 think you know things and 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 i don't mean that pejoratively i mean that's where we all are in some ways what i'm trying to do here is set aside as many assumptions as we can and look at some of this afresh some of you have never wrestled with these things before i know that cuz you tell me so it's so this is all brand new. Some of you need to look at this afresh to kind of expose some of the presuppositions you have that may or may not be um, uh, accurate. So I'm going to hold off some things as we go. Some Some of it, because I'm not even sure. Some of it, because I just want us to Walk through the text and and with fresh eyes. So, uh, Lon, I'm going to hold off on responding to that in particular. Uh, you say I offer a wild theory in my comment. Is that a comment you made after the fact or during the chat? Because I don't. Those comments you make during the chat don't always stick around. I don't always have access, so I'm not sure what you're referring to. So, either put it again here or make a comment when we get done on this video, and I will take a look. Uh, Fisher Strong says. Uh, have you heard of victorious eschatology or preterist idealist eschatology? Uh, I have. Um, I am a certainly a partial preterist. I believe that much of the scripture was fulfilled in 70 AD, but I do believe that uh, Jesus is going to actually return uh, bodily. Um, idealist eschatology is used uh, a variety of different ways. Um, so I, I don't want to certainly take that label and I want to be careful not to just throw accusations against others. Um, so yes, I have and uh, I am a sympathetic toward at least some of it, but uh, would probably have a difference uh, with with others. All right, Lon says you put a cha- an, a, a comment after the uh, chat. So I will, uh, I'll go back and look at that. I didn't see it. I, I wasn't alerted to that. So I will... Um, Go back and take a look. Okay, so our time has quickly fled from us, which is good. This is a good discussion. So let me just wrap this up here and take us back to this parallel and to give you something to think about over the weekend. So what I think is going on here is Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 2 and the Great Commission is the gospel going to the ends of the earth, discipling the nations. That's That's a fulfillment of the... Uh, the nations streaming to uh, the mountain of the Lord and the law going forth from Zion, the word of the Lord here from Jerusalem, that is the great commission, the, the the gospel going out to the nations and the commandments of Jesus, the law of Christ, as we call it, to get back to Paul's question, going out from, from Jesus, that is fulfilling uh, verse three here. If that's true, well, another interesting thing, for lawn, this phrase right here, Jesus says, "I am with you." Literally, it's all the days. Let me pull up. Uh, well, I guess I'm not going to show you the Greek since most of you don't speak Greek. But uh, this uh, phrase here, "I am with you always," is literally the phrase "all the days," which I find interesting because he's already he introduced. Uh, Chapter 2, Isaiah 2 with, it'll come about in the last days. Jesus says, behold, I'm with you all the days, even to the." This is the same phrase as Hebrews 9, consummation of the ages. Jesus says, I'm with you, even to the consummation of the age. Which still begs the question, which age? Now, Martin offered earlier, Uh, the Old Covenant age, the Old Covenant era. That's a worthy answer, and it's worth diving in to see. If we're right about uh, the fulfillment of this, then when we get to the next section of chapter 2, the next verse, he will judge between nations, render decisions for many peoples, They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. If this verse, verse 3, is fulfilled in the Great Commission, is verse 4 fulfilled in the Great Commission? Are we going to see peace before Jesus comes back? An argument can be made. Let me see what Dale says here and then we'll wrap it up. A lot of people mistake partial preterism for postmillennialism. If we're talking labels, how would you d- differentiate non theonomic postmillennialism and optimistic millennialism? Yeah. All right. A lot of words there. Lots of stuff. Um, so let me say this quickly because our time has gone away. So, uh, uh, how do I do this quickly? Postmillennialism is defined differently, right? And I said yesterday, I would say the the growing excitement about post millennialism, and it is growing, is not so much the classic golden age era, but that all of the institutions in society are going to become increasingly Christian, which in a sense, will lead to a, a golden age. Imagine if the governments and educational systems, and, well, everything in society, if everything in society was built and driven by Christians, then the world's going to be a great place to be in. Um, and I would say there's a good exegetical reason why most post-mill folks are preterists, because the same hermeneutic, the same uh, interpretive grid that leads you to see that so much of what's written is fulfilled in 70 AD, leads toward a uh, a non-dispensational view of things, and pushes against uh, that whole pre-mill and dispensational eschatology. Um, and for those of you who don't know these labels, I'm, I'm not going to define these two carefully, just get what you can. But uh, for those that do know, like Dale, then I'm going to keep talking here in this way. Um millennialism typically is not optimistic because they would see the last days as the last days of this age and would say we're we're living in the last days for the last two thousand years. And all the texts that say in the last days there'll be an increase in evil and wickedness and Jesus saying, Um, you know, if I uh, when I come will I find faith on the earth, all those things seem to indicate the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. And so, and they would look at revelation as describing our current age and all the bowls and the trumpets and all the, the you know, the wrath being poured out upon the increasing apostasy on the earth. So it's almost built in to the all position, a pessimistic view because of their hermeneutic. There are exceptions. There are some optimistic ah-mil folks but they kind of push against the the flow um, if we're talking labels how would you differentiate non-theonomic post mill and optimistic ah-mil? Um I would say if I were post mill I would start to be non-theonomic I don't believe because theonomy typically means bring the old covenant law into the world into the culture and governments should be based there. And if I ever go all the way with a quote-unquote post-mill view, I'm certainly going to be a non-theonomic view. So I'm going to say it's the law of Christ. And we look to the New Covenant Scriptures, and and even there I would say it's because the way I see it working out is instead of taking the Scripture and say we have to base all of our laws on the Scripture in a theonomic sense, if all the people making laws are Christians, they're going to derive their principles from the Scripture but that's not the same thing as simply taking the scripture and saying, we've got to find some one-to-one correlation with the laws of the land. So that's that's a significant difference between a non-theonomic post-mill person and a theonomy, uh, theonomic post-mill uh, person. And so, all right, hopefully I've answered your question. Uh, I can say this is going to get heavier theology, uh, theological speak than intended. (laughs) You're well, uh, you're forgiven, Dale. All right, folks, I'm going to wrap it up here. Have a great weekend. Ponder these things and uh, we will keep plugging away at this. Yeah, Lon, put your comment uh, after today's video and we'll uh, take a look at it next week. All right, folks, God bless. Have a great one. We will see you, Lord willing, on Monday.